Well, it's Christmas, and uh, I'm so delighted to be teaching you on this first Sunday in what's called Christmas Tide. Um, we've been really leaning into the Advent ache and anticipation of the coming of God, and and on Christmas Day we celebrated that Christmas is here. Historically, um, this season is called Christmas Tide because it includes more than Christmas Day. It's a 12-day period, which is to say that we get to settle in a bit and maybe um, do a slow burn celebration as we remember the coming of Jesus Christ. The message of Christmas is pretty simple. I mean, it's this this um, claim that God Almighty, the source, the creator, becomes creature and somehow enters into the human experience to experience our joys and our sorrows, our um, our hopes, our disappointments, our wins, our losses, and uh, to somehow become part of who we are. And that's why Jesus is called Emmanuel, which interpreted means God with us. God with us. I mean, such a wild idea. <laughs> what does it mean? Right? What are the implications of such a thing? God with us. And that's what I want to just chat about for a bit in the next few minutes. It was Christmas 1970, a few weeks ago, um, when I had my first really transforming moment in an experience with God. I wasn't in church. Um, it was just this odd moment alone up in my bedroom as a kid. And I had an encounter somehow with God. I felt that God came to me in some way. Um, anthropologist Rudolf Otto talks about these experiences that humans have in, in recorded history, where he calls them numinous experiences. These are the experiences that people describe when they encounter the holy or when they encounter some sense of a being that's other than they are, somehow transcendent to them. And um, it was fascinating, really, when I think about it. I mean, uh, no one prepped me for it. Uh, I have some descriptions for it, but just like how one would describe beauty, words are often insufficient and you need something more than words. But when I think about it, I think about this this sense of a mix of peace along with a kind of mysterious wonder, um, a little bit of terror in it. Uh, and really it rocked my world as a 14-year-old boy. If you have never had any kind of experience like that, you really have something to look forward to do. Um, God with us has the stuff of that in it. Somehow you have these moments, these senses of mystery. It's a kind of mystic thing. But God with us has a promise that's filled with more than just kind of mystical experiences. Uh, it carries the promise of new things. The Advent story um, that leads up to Christmastide is often called the season of last things. And the reason that it's called that is because it's referring to how new things would begin to spill into the world at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Um, and what the Bible calls first things, referring to how the world came to be, the universe came to be, starts being replaced by something different. Something's added to it. And it starts when Jesus 
appears in the world. The arrival of Jesus anticipates what the New Testament calls the new creation, which implies it's the end of something and the beginning of something else. And it was to be the end of the first things that had occurred, things that were dominated by death. And um, something new comes. And it's beautiful because it's a model of what happens to a person who has this numinous experience, this sense of encountering the other. Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, if any person encounters God like this in Christ, right, this person becomes a new creation. The old passes away and behold, the new comes. <laughs> it's a change. If you think about evolution, you know that, that it's a story of violent change and you know that it's, uh, it's about the dim hope of survival. Um, that certainly captures much of the human story in history. First things, first things didn't emerge easily. But the Bible claims that in this new creation, there would be the appearance of new, right? And I don't think evolution has stopped, but I think something new has entered into the mix of it. We're told that the new creation is jammed with more life than death, and that this life will eventually overtake death. It will conquer it. It's a wild claim. One of the strange aspects of this, though, is that the new doesn't, and it confuses me, is, is how in the world does the new come and not completely destroy the old, right? Why isn't there this twinkling of an eye, instant change where the new comes and it quashes the old? I mean, that seems like that's what should happen, like one nation coming in that conquers another nation and sort of stops things and turns over things immediately. But this is not that. I mean, the dawning of the new in this story starts out with this vulnerable baby, in, um, in a manger in this insignificant village. And there are no mansions. There are no, um, you know, riches involved. This is a baby who has no status and no position. I mean, one would expect that if God Almighty came into the world, that you would have had a lot of big in it. But that's not what happens here. Instead, Jesus comes into the world sort of through the back rows of ancient Israel and um, to a place that had really had no privilege, showed no privilege. I mean, he gets to this little town and there wasn't even any room for him to be born in uh, at least a place of safety, a place of that would be a sense of protection. <laughs> Instead, he's born in a place where animals hang out, right? Some kind of a, a barn. You can imagine Mary... Uh, in her disappointment of just not having things right in a situation like that. I uh, just had our, we just had our ninth baby, grandbaby, and uh, my daughter, Lissa, and my wife, Gail, oh my gosh, they were humming about, they've been humming about for weeks, you know, getting blankets ready and bedding ready and clothes ready and everything just perfect and bringing out stuff and double washing them and all this stuff just because they're trying to make space for this little baby girl who showed up yesterday. Um, but here, you know, Mary doesn't get that. I mean, she gets a barn. And God entered the world 
really in a place that was sort of a place of squalor and um, disappointment. The upside is you have some angels singing and and you have uh, a few um, you know night watchmen of the sheep, night sheep herders. Um, no scholars, no rulers, no really important people. It's just kind of done in the middle of the night. You remember these night guards are people who live most of their lives not in front of other people. Pretty unglamorous. And yet that's where the new begins. My point is, when the new came, it was sort of underwhelming. And this is what's odd about faith. You begin to encounter, you begin to open, you begin to have transformation. And yet in some ways, it's really not very overwhelming. It's kind of underwhelming. And there's kind of this wrestle of what does this even mean in my life? Yet the promise is there that new will eventually take over the old. It, it just doesn't happen quickly. So we find ourselves in this, this middle of tension that even though new life has come, death seems to linger. And so even though the new has come, it has not fully come. There's stuff that hangs. And this kind of tension is the wrestle of human faith in God. Um, theologians call it the eschatological tension because they're talking about the kingdom's here. We've had some taste of it, but it's not fully here. And we live in that tension most of our lives, or at least until the end of things, as the Bible talks about it. I'm pointing this out only because um, when God, when we say God is with us, we're not saying that all will be well all the time. <laughs> I've for whatever reason, maybe it's because I'm an American, I've had this expectation that if God was really with me, there would be nothing but joy, you know, lots of good times, not much pain, um, not any need, and everyone would adore me. <laughs> but it doesn't turn out that way. And we see that in this gospel reading that we've had today. This is from Luke where it says, the text says about Simeon who has been anticipating the coming of the Lord, living in that Advent anxiety. And all of a sudden he sees Jesus and the Holy Family and he grabs Jesus into his hands. And the text, we pick up the text, and Simeon took Jesus in his arms and he praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, you, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. It's just so hopeful. He's saying, this is it. It's happened God has come. And then the very, the text just continues and says, Then Simeon blessed them, the Holy Family, and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And then he says, And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Hmm. God with us is jammed with hope, but it's not all hope. There's some falling to be had. There's um, some opposition to be experienced. There are some, some piercing of the soul to be felt in the midst of it. What, what I think we should expect from the idea of 
God with us? Is it life is going to careen toward grace and peace? <laughs> That's what we greet each other with every week. Grace and peace to you. What are we saying? We're saying it's a beautiful way to say, God be with you, or God is with you. And as a result, you can expect over time for grace and peace to dawn in your life. Uh, grace is simply the favor of God, where somehow God gets in the mix of your life and does favors for you. It might be favors internally. It might be favors in your external experiences. I mean, when I was, you know, back in the day when I was in my 30s and 40s and slammed with life, busy in church work, pastoring staffs, you know, kids all over the place, married, uh, you know, just engaged with the home and taking care of all that stuff and paying bills. There were days that I would come home and I would think to myself, okay, my Gail's in there with these little ingrates, these children, and, and they're all going to want something from me. And I've already given all I've got. And, and I remember stopping and I put my hands on 10 and 2 and my car wheel, you know, drive, steering wheel. And I'd say, God, I'm spent. I really don't have it. I just want to go in there and I want to be selfish. I want to go in that house and I want to control the uh, remote and I don't want anybody to talk to me. But I know I've got to enter this. So would you help me? And I would just sit for a moment. To my shock, those times when I did that, I'd walk in and I had something more than what I had. I don't know if it was me. I don't know if it was God. It was probably a little of both God and me. But somehow I sensed favor, help, strength. I think that's an example of grace. I think that, that this truth is so powerful that that's why I think you know the 12-step programs will have embedded into those first couple of steps the idea that one, you know, we, we admit that we're powerless over X, right? And that there, we have, we've come to believe that there's a power that's greater than us that can help us move toward wholeness. It's that kind of notion of I need grace. And I think people tap into God's grace when they don't even realize that they're tapping into God's grace. And grace enables us to find the capacity to do things where we did not feel we had or have demonstrated that we have not had that capacity on our own. Peace uh, is, I think, the place where things become right, where things become appropriate. And I think God wants in on that in our lives as well. I think this is the good that Paul refers to in Romans 8 when he talks about how we can chum with God in faith and that whenever things happen to us, it doesn't mean that God does everything, but somehow if we move toward God, that whatever is going on, the good, the bad, the stuff that's our own stupid, other people's stupid, the devil, you know, the world, whatever's going on, just the stuff, the pandemics, the stuff that happens, that God will enter it to the, with, with the people who are chumming with him, who are open to him, and begin to turn those things into good. The text says this, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. It doesn't say God causes all things. But he causes all things to work together for good to those who love him 
and to those who who are called according to his purpose. I think that what this is saying is that this is what happens to us when we become people of faith. And when we look at each other, we say grace and peace. This is what we're saying. Man, may favors be on your life and may everything work out in your life to be appropriate. See, this is the hope of the new creation. Not that everything fits together right away, but things will get better and you and I can get better. And not only that, in the meanwhile, when things are not working out, when it seems that you're stuck in the land of the sock, right? Things are just not good. Somehow, God will communicate strength to you to endure it and to be there, to hang in there. Um, years ago, I was I was the pastor of this lady. I'd known her for a number of years. By the time I'm talking to her at this point, she was in her 80s, mid-80s, and she had been pretty sickly in the last decade of her life. She's now since gone. Her name is Ola Zagarek. And um, she, when I was meeting with her, she was in a nursing home and I was talking with her and praying with her and found out that she had, because of a surgery that she had had, had been put on um, uh, some pain uh, drugs that she ended up becoming addicted to because they didn't take them, take them away from her early enough. And she just followed the instructions and found herself addicted. And she told me, she said, you know, she was in the middle of this. She was like coming out of that addiction. She was like 25 days into not having it. And it was, she said it was horrible. So I'm there to pray for her. And she said, you know, I talked to Jesus about this. And she said, I asked Jesus to heal me. And he said, I'm not going to heal you. I'm going to give you the power, the persistence, the courage to get through it. Suffer through this until you're free. And uh, I thought to myself, you know, um, even though she said it was horrible, she said that Jesus is here with me. And she says, now, as a result of this being broken in me, she said, I have so much more compassion for addicts that I used to sort of, in my mind, have a sort of disdain for. She says, now I understand. And she said, I'm a better, better prayer person because I, <laughs> I think that's just a beautiful example of how faith works. I mean, I, I don't know how this works out in your life. I'm still trying to figure out how it works in my life. I mean, I'm 65 years of age and I'm still a little sketchy about how all of this works, but, but I'm glad I'm in this faith thing, this new creation. And I consider myself a, a bit of a, a bit of a holy fool. If you recall, it was the, the apostle Paul who called himself a fool for Christ. And it, it, it means that you don't, have to have everything set or everything perfect. You don't have to have a clear understanding of the road for you to be in. Even if you look like a fool, you're a holy fool. Um, you're just in. Holy fools use uh, what Robert Sokolowski calls uh, declarative words to express their commitment to being a part of or present in some thing where you're just in uh, in his book the Phenomenal phenomenology of the human person Sokolowski and his colleagues they describe the stance of this kind of person I wanted to end with quoting this for you he said quote to say I'm still here in this way is a declarative use of the word I 
It is neither cognitional nor an emotive use. In other words, it's not something you're trying to figure out with your head. It's not something you just feel like you should do emotionally. He says, this usage is often found in religious language. When using an existential declarative, I do not promise or dedicate myself to any particular project or any project in particular. He says, I am just there for whatever may come and whatever needs to be seen or done, but I am still there and I declare myself as such, as a dative, as a person engaged in veracity, end quote. <laughs> in other words, what you're saying is, I'm in. I, I, I may not know what's going on, but you know what? I'm in. I invite you into this kind of life with the God who is with us, to dare to be in. It's called the life of faith. It's messy. It's hit and miss. But it's precious and ultimately freeing. Amen. Amen.